Hi, welcome to Disrupting Death. I'm Kathy Cordes Miller. And I am Carrie Lynn Durant. Kathy, today we're going to get to talk to somebody that we serendipitously met at one of our great conferences that we get to go to. I know. I was so glad she leaned over and introduced herself when we were sitting at the table at the World Federation Right to Die Society Conference this past November. And I love that you used the verb leaned because so often in the work that you and I do together, we invite people to lean in and listen and share. And and that's exactly what Cynthia Clark did at our table at that conference. She leaned in and she wanted to know more about the work that we engage in and how we could make connections to the work that she does in the province of Alberta. And I felt immediately connected to her because it turned out we went to the same high school. And while there's probably only mm, about a decade or so difference in our ages, it was lovely to have that connection and to hear from a fellow Albertan. And we only got a small piece of her story at the conference, just enough to know that we really need to hear more about Cynthia, about her children, and about the journey that they went on when her husband chose to use medical assistance and dying. I think that's so true. And what we also got in that short amount of time with Cynthia, I think, is the enthusiasm with which she's navigating these spaces, you know, working with Dying with Dignity, the chapter that she works with, and getting her message across to the people of Alberta and beyond about her experiences and really holding space, again, leaning in to be an advocate and an avid listener to the stories of others. And she leads with her heart. And I think this is evident not only as she's going to tell us about the experiences her family has, but also the work that she does as a change agent, as an advocate for the Made Family Support Society. And she's also putting together a book with stories about people who have had experiences with Maid. So I can't wait to hear more from Cynthia. So let's go get that conversation started. So Cynthia, thanks so much for joining us today. And so can we begin our conversation with you telling us a little bit about your husband who died using MAID? Sure, yeah. My husband and I moved back to Canada from abroad. And two years later, he started being not himself. And we we actually thought he was just having some panic episodes and some mental health stuff. And on his birthday um, ended up in the ER because things were not getting better and yeah in the matter of a few hours we went from celebrating a birthday and thinking that daddy was um, just struggling to your husband has a six centimeter tumor in his head and we have to admit him and call the emergency surgery team and he has brain cancer and is going to die So, yeah, um, he had treatment for nine months and found out treatment wasn't working. And we had an expression in our house that we used for playdates and with the kids that we should quit while things are still fun. So we don't wait for shit to hit the fan. 
to finally end the play date, that it's okay to leave when things, we're still having fun. Yes, that's the point. We want to want to come back and want, we want to be invited back and we want to leave on a good note. So when he was diagnosed from the very beginning, we were both in agreement like to, to do the standard course of treatment, but he, he lost a lot of his speech. So he used to just do this like expression with his hand across his throat, like, and then like, I'm out of here. Let's just like not mess around. So um, yeah, nine months later, three days after my 40th birthday, we went for a follow-up. Like we thought we were getting prescribed more chemo and everything was going well, well, as well as can be expected. Yeah, and the doctor told us that there was another tumor and that chemo wasn't working. And then started talking to us about another surgery and it was operable and options and it was this really surreal moment like it was like I saw all the calendar pages like flying off the wall and then she started talking about options and surgery and it was like they were some of them were flying back on the wall like I thought we always said when we got to this point he wanted made and then she's talking about options and surgery like what and I remember asking her like isn't this the moment we kind of always said like treatment's not working then like we're done and she just looked at us with tears in her eyes she was also a mother of young children and said yeah this is the point we sort of said that we said oh okay like the calendar pages flew back up the wall um, yeah, she's like, do, do you want the forms? Like, yes, <laughs> it was so confusing having regularly spoken to the medical provider about his wishes and about, you know, he never wants another brain surgery. It was awful. I think he wishes he didn't have the first one and he felt like he should do the standard course of treatment, but never had an interest in clinical trials or heroic measures or, you know, uprooting the family to chase rainbows. So he signed the forms that day and a month later, he had a medically assisted death at home. Thank you for outlining that for us and that vision of the calendar pages flying off the wall and then a few of them coming back will stick with me for quite some time. And as someone who has the privilege of educating future healthcare providers of tomorrow, I hope that, and this doesn't make anything easier, but the reason your healthcare provider asked or made suggestions was because she had connected deeply with you and your husband and your family. And it was a way of saying that she wished this wasn't happening not because she hadn't heard you. Yeah, and I mean, this was also three years ago where MAID was, um, you know, a little newer and a little more controversial than now. And I think that the guidance around initiating conversations with patients about MAID was different. I had always chalked it up to more... I have to make sure you know all your options and I can't be the one to bring up MAID, um, which was, a, a, you know, a chronic frustration in our journey. Fortunately, we were aware of the fact that that 
guidance or protocol kind of existed in the medical community that always needs to come from the patient. And we were those funny patients that brought it up at every single meeting. You know that like he wants made eventually, right? You know that, and it's um, just a funny anecdote. I've never seen something so funny um, at the cancer center. Every time you go for an appointment, they have a form like on a scale of one to 10, like how are you feeling today? And how is your mobility? And how is your this? And how is your that? And have you had thoughts of suicide and ending your life? And one time we ticked like, yes, all the time. <laughs> it's like pulling the fire alarm in the hospital. Everyone's like, oh my God, like, have you been thinking about it today? Have you been like, are you gonna, do you have a plan? Are you gonna kill yourself? And it's like, oh my God, like he wants to have made people. Like he thinks about it every day, how he's going to end his life. He has a terminal diagnosis. For something like within a year, this isn't a long-term thing. And he wants to have a medically assisted death and be in charge of it. Like, yes, he thinks about ending his life every single day. Of course he does. And so do I. Like, what? I don't understand. <laughs> like, alarm bells in everybody's head. But this brings for me that, um, and I've had this conversation with other people recently about the difference between suicide and medical assistance in dying. And so as someone who's accompanied someone throughout that process, how do you see the difference? Can you be really clear? Oh, this is a can of worms question for me. Um, there are days that I get really upset about the two words and I'm aware there's a difference I think the biggest difference is that we got to say goodbye. We knew, we got to support him, we got to say goodbye. There was no stigma in our world, in our family, for my children. Um, having said that, I don't like to hone in on the difference between made and suicide because I fear that we are further stigmatizing suicide by saying, oh, but this isn't that, because that is so terrible and awful, and this is better. And I sometimes currently like to just embrace the word suicide because I think suicide is still a choice, and I think people should have choice in how and when they end their life. But for the people that are left behind, I think a choice where you can inform your loved ones and you can have participation and you can say goodbye and have acceptance or have the opportunity to have all of your options pursued before you do that is much nicer and gentler for the loss, people who lose you. So I have these two conversations in my head about, um, you know, Made is much gentler for the people who are left behind, for sure. Thank you. I, and I appreciate you letting us open that, that can of worms. And I, I just recently spoke with someone and they said very similar things to what you did. And they said that made is different because it allows people dignity and control at the end of their life and allows them to do it with the people that they love. And it sounds having read his obituary, learned a little bit about your family, but it sounds like your family also released him on that day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were really lucky. Um, 
maybe because we were very vocal. His family was supportive. My family was supportive. Anyone who wasn't supportive, we're not really aware of. We were really clear, this is what we're doing and this is what we want. And if you don't support it, like we really don't want to hear about it. And this is enough for discussion. Um, but having said that, we were really open. We, I, was really open with everyone because I had young children. And I think I experienced my husband's illness and his death more as the mother of my children than as his wife. I was acutely aware during all of it of the decisions that we made and the conversations we had, not just with the kids, but with the people in the kids' lives, of trying to kind of curate their experience to make sure that it was healthy, that it was good for their mental health, that they were supported, that they had the information and the opportunity to ask questions and to participate in decisions. And that required them to be able to process what they heard, which meant that it was probably most fair to inform the school and their teachers and their parents of their peers, because that was of course going to filter onto the playground and into the schoolyard and the classroom that what was going on at home. So I chose to be really open through our whole journey and started like kind of a public blog sharing with people like where we were at and what was happening at our house and what conversations we were having and what the kids knew so that, you know, parents and teachers knew like in advance, like this is what might come up or pop out of my children's mouths today. Cynthia, so yes, incredible. Um, I have been really enthralled by the way you speak about how children interact with medical assistance and dying and, and what they understand. And uh, listening to you talk just now and using terms like curate and how children will kind of forward their own way and listening to some of your writing. But you used a three-word phrase that I really love you to expound upon. You said that you believe that children should be included, consulted, and considered. And I think as a supporter of children's dying, death, and loss, I completely agree. But I'm wondering if you feel perhaps that you could talk about how important that is in terms of a medically assisted death in particular. I would love that. Yeah, sure. I would love to because that's kind of what fuels me. I mean, I think every parent hears something like your husband's going to die in a year and your children are in elementary school and you think, is this going to be the thing that like drives them to like drugs, pregnancy, suicide? Like, is this going to wreck them? How do I make sure that they're going to be okay or that they can get through this without it being the thing that ruined them. I've always been really honest with my kids and I started to become acutely aware of the fact that their dad was going to die and I was going to be their only parent, which meant that any breach of trust or honesty would leave them like without a parent that they trusted. There wasn't this option of, well, there's two of you, or if I'm mad at you, the other one. Like, I just felt like I couldn't lie to them about anything because one day when they found out, it would wreck our trust. 
Yep, somebody will tell them inevitably, right? Mm-hmm. I came home from the hospital the day after his birthday and my kids came to my bed and they asked me like, where is daddy and why is he in the hospital? And is he going to die? The first question, is daddy going to die? And I, yeah, I remember I was laying there, my best friend had slept over and she was hugging me and I was hugging them and I had to say, yeah, actually, he is going to die. Um, not today and not tomorrow and we don't exactly know when, but I mean, how do you talk to, how do you tell your kids probably before the end of next school year, daddy will die? Um, and one of them, on a regular basis, used to sort of check in. I mean, it was the age they were at. Um, is Daddy going to die this month? Is Daddy going to die before Christmas? Why isn't Daddy dead yet? <laughs> when When's Daddy going to die? <laughs> and I mean, I laugh about it now, but it just was, I, that's how they processed things. Like, we'd be getting dressed in the morning and rolling around in our <laughs> underwear and trying to corral children to school and, you know, is daddy gonna die this week? <laughs> so yeah, sorry, back to your question. Participate, consulted and considered. An example there, uh, we had both written in our wills, like we want to be cremated. Why? I don't really know. It's cheaper, I think, maybe, um, <laughs> because why not? And I started to think about how this worked for the kids and how, as we neared closer to the end, and had to start thinking about things like that. And um, I remembered being a child myself and going to some funerals and seeing bodies and caskets and another one where there was no body and no casket because they had been burnt. And the child, when I was a kid, was like, what? Like, why? And so I asked my kids, you know, what, ha do you know what happens when someone dies? Like, do you know what happens? And we talked about what happens to their body and lots of interesting questions about, do you pee yourself? Does your mouth stay open or closed? And do your eyes close by themselves? And then what happens? And we talked a little bit about like funeral customs and how people celebrate their loved ones and you know some people bury their loved ones in a box and some people burn them and my kids were like what we are not burning daddy <laughs> and I went home and said to my husband yeah I'm, we're not cremating you. Like, I think the kids need to kind of see you alive and see you sick and see you dead and then see you in the box and then see the box go in the ground and have a place to go if they want to. I don't think that they're at an age or stage where just like putting you in a fire and burning you and putting you on the mantle is going to work for them. Like, Sorry, I know that's what you want, but I don't think we can do that. That's an example, I guess, of, you know, consulting the kids on how they wanted this process to go or to look. And taking their age and their stage and 
where they're thinking and what they're feeling into consideration in that moment. And that's active parenting, right? There were days it was challenging. We weren't a family or I am not someone and my husband wasn't someone who really believed in any kind of afterlife. That wasn't a belief that resonated with us and we never really instilled it in our children. But I remember taking my kids to the therapist one day and introducing to them the idea of heaven and wondering if that might be a belief that would make things easier for them and trying to authentically offer them a tool that could make them feel good, knowing it doesn't make me feel good and knowing that they know that I don't believe in that. And I remember they said, but mommy, we don't believe in that, do we? And I said, well, I don't really get comfort from thinking about things that way, but you might, other people do. If it feels good, we can talk about that. We, we can believe in that if you want to. But mommy, do you believe in that? I said, well, it doesn't really matter if I believe in that. If it feels good for you to believe in that, like we can do that. And really, again, this honesty thing of trying to, I didn't want to lie and tell them, yes, I do. It feels great. I mean, I don't. And I said, here's the thing. It doesn't make me feel good. That doesn't make me deal with this in a better way. But for some people, it really helps them be a better human and accept the bad things that happen in a way that is easier. So if that's easier for you, there's nothing wrong with you believing something different than what I believe. After he died, we got a dog. And one day, one of my kids said to me, I know this isn't true, but sometimes I like to think that the dog is like daddy being here with us. And I know that doesn't make sense because the dog was born after daddy died and like, or was born before daddy died. So it can't really be daddy came back because, and they had all these, you know, logical steps, but they said to me, but it's still, I like, I still think about it as like daddy's here with us because they're quiet like daddy and calm like daddy and give nice cuddles like daddy. And it just feels like it could be daddy. And I said, so let's just, talk about that the dog is daddy like that we don't have to make it all make sense like it just feels good so we can go with it we can believe that oh cynthia how lovely how lovely the one thing i'm really struck from listening to you and also listening to your writing is that curiosity that kids inevitably have and as you said earlier about how they're processing things right well if this is this then that must be that so when it comes down to these conversations of medical assistance and dying, did you find that the kids had natural curiosity about that because it was kind of a distinctive component of what was happening? No. I mean, my kids hadn't experienced death. So we got to introduce made to them as their first death experience. And so it was like we wrote the script. Yes, they had lots of questions, but they have lots of questions about everything. Like, 
how will it work and what will it work and what is the name of the medication and how long does it take? And, you know, all of the questions, yes. But a couple of months after he died, a family friend had to put their dog down. And the kids, said, next time they saw the friend said, so your dog had made like our dad. And we were like, yeah. And so the next time they heard about someone dying, I think it was an animal though. I just remember them saying, so did your dog like die die or did they have made? And for them, it's like just a normal thing. Like there's no stigma. They don't know any other reality than like this is how things can happen. Does that answer the question? Beautifully. Beautifully. Earlier on, it really resonated with me when you said how it was important to you and your husband to never lie to your children about what was going on. And um, I've had cancer myself and we had to answer. I didn't die, just in case you were curious. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, just felt like I had to get that one in there. Um, my kids, though, also had a lot of questions and, you know, at inopportune times, at bedtime, all those kind of things. But I remember, and I think this is a funny story, and I think you might as well. We were on an airplane coming back from a family vacation at one point. And I was sitting in between my children, who at the time were like, I want to say around five and seven. And we had fallen asleep because we were tired after family vacation and woke up to literally falling out of the sky in the plane. And I held both of my kids back, all this kind of stuff. People are screaming, things are falling on the airplane. And my daughter is like, Mama, are we going to die? To which I said, of course we are at some point. You know this. <laughs> and the man behind me leans over and goes, way not to lie to your kid, but you're scaring the shit out of me. <laughs> and my kid like looked at me, well, of course she's not going to lie, right? And I thought, oh, thank goodness I didn't lie to you. And let's hold on tight, right? Mm -hmm. And right. again, we also didn't die in that airplane. But um, I think it's essential. I think... And using the language that they're using is important as well. And I think realizing I had to ask myself and others many times, is this our stuff or their stuff? You know, one of the things I hate the most is like in an age appropriate context. And I challenge people a lot because I think often that is a euphemism for what the parent can handle. It's like, oh, we need to use age appropriate language or we'll tell them as much as like, is appropriate for their age. And I think mm, that sort of sounds like you need an excuse to not tell your kids because you're not comfortable talking about it. Because really, I mean, the truth is he's sick and he's going to die and someone's going to help him. And it's really not that complicated. And children can handle a lot. And if you say it like that, they're just facts. I mean, we tell them that about animals. Like, it's not something they can't handle. It's something that we find hard to talk about or is politically charged or emotionally and religiously charged, but it's not actually age inappropriate. And because we find it hard to talk about doesn't mean we should not talk about it. Right. Because their dad's still going to die. Someone's still going to come and help him die. And our children can see us struggle with things and not always be able to talk about it without crying and crying can be a normal reaction and all those things. 
I remember being challenged on like, yes, we support you. And yes, this is, but you're not, you're going to tell the kids, are you? It's like, why doesn't your support extend to that? Right. Well, but also, I mean, the feeling of being on an island of one when you're surrounded by many, how do you imagine that this is going to go down? Like we all live in the same house and he and I are going to know he's going to die tomorrow and the kids aren't. And like, would I just drop them off at school and pick them up and be like, so something happened today or like, do you not think that he was going to like hold them tight the night, the last time he puts them to bed or the last hug goodbye in the morning? Like, how will I explain to them why daddy's acting so weird or why I'm crying or why everyone's coming over and the days leading up? Like, how, how would I not tell them that we know the day and time and that someone's going to help him. Like, I, I felt, yeah, confused, but also just extremely misunderstood. Like, do you know what my day-to-day -day life looks like here? Like, how would you, like, hide that from them? And how much would they resent me later in life when they figured it out? Because there's no way that that would be able to be kept a secret forever. No, no. So Cynthia, were your children present when your husband died? My husband said he didn't want to die at home. And I put my mama hat on and thought, well, what, what would that look like? And asked him, do you not want to die at home or are you making a decision that you somehow think is best for us. And it was the latter. And I said, well, how about you just worry about what you want and you let me worry about the rest of us? Because I'm trying to think about, like, were we going to get in a taxi and take a taxi ride to your death appointment? And are we going to sit on cold plastic chairs in, like, a sterile room? And what happens if the kids don't want to be there? Are they going to sit outside with like nurse Sally and like choose a show on their iPad to watch while daddy dies. Like what show were you watching when your daddy died? Like, um, when their daddy's dying, like they're going to want their mommy, which means I'm going to be where they are. And if they're not with you when you're dying, then I'm not going to be with you when you're dying. And I can't be mommy and wife at the same time if I'm not in the, same room. So it seems to me like if we're in our comfort zone, which is our home where everyone feels comfortable everywhere, there's a lot more options for people to decide what's comfortable for them in the moment and for people to be comforted by the things that comfort them. So his thing was like, well, I don't want to like taint the family home with my death and the memory of it. And my thing was, well, I just think it's a little more natural like for them to go play with their Legos and then come check on things and then go play with a puzzle and then come check on things and then go jump on the trampoline and sort of feel like they're in their space and their comfort zone. And then there's 
options for if they're present or they're not present or they're decide at the last minute and see how they're feeling than going somewhere for like a death provision. And so your children were offered the fluidity of the moments to be where they needed to be. Yes. He died at home, but he didn't die in like the family bedroom. We kind of turned our guest room like into a bit of a special place for him to die. So our friends and my parents and the kids came over and we kind of collected items from around the house that you know, were special to him or special to the kids or some pieces of artwork and things that were, yeah, special to make the room beautiful and that he could see his things and things of his children's. And we spent, you know, the morning in that room together as a family. We were, we were watching a cartoon on the laptop when the maid team arrived and my husband sort of, well, yeah, I was nervous and indicated to the kids like they should go now is like the doctor was here and the doctor was great and was like, no, no, like, this is your day. We work around you. You guys should just keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, the children were very interested in, like, all of the things coming out of the doctor's bag and what is this for and what is that for? And the doctor was really straightforward about explaining, like, what was what and what was going to happen and how it was going to work. And, yeah, the, the kids were given the option to participate to the extent that they felt comfortable. And my parents were here in the home to be able to comfort them if they chose not to participate or they needed to be supported so that I was able to be like a wife and say my goodbyes. Um, yeah. Thank you, Cynthia, for sharing those very intimate details. I love the image of your kids watching a video on the laptop. That seems to me so normal. But I'm also really grateful that you had a couple of moments as your husband's wife, as his life partner, to take some time for yourself. Mm. Yeah. I'd kind of like to pivot, Cynthia, if you're okay, and ask you some questions about the writing specifically and about the project, the many faces of made. I really zeroed in on the term faces and I thought, why many faces of made? Mm. I sort of feel like the answer might not be as satisfying. So the writing project, let's just give a little description to it first, is made is a rather specific type of loss. I think there's tons of similarities, but there's a few things that make it rather unique and interesting. And in sort of seeking support and then offering peer support for people who have been through a made experience, yeah, we discovered there's an awful lot of feelings and things that happen that are really common and normal. And at the same time, there's not a lot of information available before, during, and after to support the people kind of walking the journey. We also use this word right now, survivors of MAID. That's for lack of a better word, because not everyone is a loved one. Not everyone is intimately involved. But the people who keep on living after someone else has had MAID, so 
we wanted to create like a support group in a book. It's a collection of anecdotes demonstrating all the different feelings that come up at all the different stages. And so there's about 15 participants who we are guiding on a writing journey, sharing snippets of things they felt. And we're really diving deep into normalizing, validating the different feelings, the good, the bad, the expected, the unexpected feelings that arise. You know, there were funny moments. There were joyous moments. Of course, there were sad moments. And there were moments I was so mad and so resentful and so frustrated and tired. And there were also moments of of laughter. There were moments of exhaustion, relief. There's anger, denial. And we really wanted to try to help future people in our situations know that anything you're feeling at any stage, you could open a book and be like, someone could be there on the page saying, oh yeah, I felt that. I remember that day. You're not alone. And tomorrow when you're feeling the opposite, like there's someone else. Oh, yep, I felt that. Um, so the many faces of made, we were trying to include any and all of the people who have been involved in any capacity in a made experience. You thought that that answer might disappoint us somehow? <laughs> well, I guess the word faces doesn't, I, I don't know the, why the many faces of made. I love it. And I, what you've done, Cynthia, too, thank you, is you really touched on the, my second question. Because when I, I listened to you and Carol talk about the project and you talked about a 600-word limit, you talked about prompts that you would involve in the writing process so that people could feel that they could perhaps gravitate to one prompt or another. It seems to me like you really wanted to help people tell their story in a certain way. That, is that something that you could comment on? Yeah. Um, so I got a lot out of journaling and writing and processing my experience through writing. And I think that as I've been supporting others afterwards that I've felt like, wow, it would be great if everyone could kind of heal through writing. I also observed, or we, Carol and I observed, a lack of resources for people during the process of this experience, looking for others who have been through it or to tell you what to expect or what is going on. So there was kind of this, if people could heal through writing and then they had their stories, they could go use their own stories however and wherever they wish and we would have more advocates and speakers. So it was like you could heal you could share and make change in the world. And then there was this piece, you could support others with your story. And so one step is writing your story for you, saying what you need to say to help you heal. And where Carol and I come in as sort of the authors, curators, planners is saying, but some of my story is not interesting or useful 
to everyone else. Let's pick the parts that you've shared of your story that we can envision will be helpful to others in the future. The book is a little bit um, chronological. So in this stage where you're just learning that your person is like old and approaching death or has a diagnosis, what are all the different feelings that came up? And so if we all tell a little story about how devastated and sad we were, well, that's going to help people in one moment of their journey. But we all know there were moments where we were hopeful. There were moments where we were in denial. There were moments where we felt, as I said before, tired, sick. There were also just good, normal moments. So who wants to like tell a little story about this? Who wants to tell a little story about that? And so the word limit was a little bit around like, this is not telling like the whole story of being diagnosed. This is like one emotion from each person and a different emotion from each person. This isn't your whole experience. It's like a snippet or a window. We sometimes say to the writers, um, imagine you're talking to someone who says, and then like, I just felt X. Is that normal? And you can answer, oh, I remember when I felt X. It's really a snapshot, right? It's 600 words in a kind of snapshot that represents that face. And that really speaks to you and Carol deciding about the eight stages, right? And having people kind of gravitate and really want to share. Perhaps you just comment about those eight stages and how you came to those. Oh, yeah. So there's this stage where you, yeah, diagnosis, and then you kind of find out, you learn that MAID exists and that it's a consideration. And there's a lot of feelings that go along with like knowing, learning about MAID or your person telling you like, oh, I'm considering this thing called MAID. And then there's, and now you need to help me <laughs> get MAID, apply for MAID, find out how to do it, advocate for me, sit through, you know, assessments with me or not. Um, so there's, yeah, diagnosis, learning about MAID, um, procuring made, saying goodbye, and then having made, like made day. And then there's like immediately after. There's the, the right after. For some people, that's the moments after. For some, it's kind of the days or weeks after the celebration of life, perhaps. Then there's kind of this middle after, like it's, didn't just happen, but I'm, you know, maybe like the first year. So we called that finding support, reaching out. And then there is the making meaning, giving back, moving forward. Again, everyone's in a bit of a different place on their journey. Some people maybe don't feel like they're there yet. I really appreciate yeah. the arc that you're curating with the Absolutely. stories. and. In the work that Carrie Lynn and I do in death education and increasing death literacy, we often talk about that how it's not enough anymore just to normalize dying death, loss, and bereavement. And I would also say medical assistance in dying to that anymore. We need to socialize it. We need to mm -hmm. embed it as part of our everyday, as you were talking about doing with your children, so that we will be better prepared to live well until we die. And it sounds like a book like this offers that, that somebody could open it up and almost pick out different pieces of what they need in that moment so that they can socialize this event 
this moment in time that's happening. Totally. I attended group support when my husband was sick. And I remember you kind of walk into the room looking for someone that, you know, you can relate to. And when you first walk in, you look for someone that like looks like you. Like I remember I, I was under 40, like everyone here is old and their person is like dying of cancer, but they're 70, they've been married for 40 years. Like I gravitated to the youngest other woman in the room, like a wife who's young or someone who's young, it's their dad's dying. Oh, you know, you're not going to get, you know, you, you find a little, a little more and you think, oh, maybe you're not going to get me. So you, the next stage is, well, who else's husband has brain cancer or who else's husband has cancer or has a husband in the room. And then you think you, okay, this person's going to get it. Like she's young and her person has cancer. And then, you know, you go back next week or a couple of weeks and then suddenly one day they say something that you just totally don't resonate with. Like, oh, like, you think you're going to see them again in heaven one day and you're like, oh, like they don't get me. Like that's not what I believe or that's not how I relate to this experience. And then one day, you know, like the man across the room whose daughter's dying, who's like, you're a man, I'm not. You're a father, I'm a wife, and it's been six years, and for me it's been three months. Like, we have nothing that's going to make us, our experience the same. Says something that you're like, yes, like, that's how I feel. Thank you, someone gets it. And so I guess in the idea of the book is that, yes, today when you're feeling X, like someone in the book, you can, like, I'm in this stage and someone in that chapter has probably talked about that feeling. And if it isn't in that chapter, it's in the next chapter. And maybe in this chapter, you relate to Fred. And in this chapter, you relate to Bonnie. And in that chapter, you relate to Joe. But you can find someone to validate how you're feeling at any point in time. That's the hope for the book. Yeah. And then an experience that lets people know that they're not alone. Absolutely. Yeah. So Cynthia, I'm interested in thinking about moving forward. And what do you think is going to happen with medical assistance in dying in Canada? Ooh. What do you hope for? And what do you fear, if anything? Um, this story reminds me of a really beautiful story that is totally unrelated. But um, when I told my children that my husband had set a date and that he was ready to die, one of them said to me, but seven days, mommy, like that's so soon. And I mean, for me too, yeah, I know, seven days, crap, like that's so soon. But I had to parent that. And I, I said to her, yeah, you know, it seems so soon, but can you imagine what it feels like to be ready to die and have to wait for seven days? Like, how do you say I'm ready if you're not ready and then have to wait for seven days? Like, what, what does daddy do when he wakes up? Like, should he start a new project? Should he start a new puzzle? Do you, like, start things you're not going to finish? Like, how many times do you say goodbye? Like, what do you do every day for seven days like that's kind of what feels excruciatingly long if I imagine like I'm ready now to die. And she said, 
Oh, yeah, that must be really hard for daddy. And it was just this like level of compassion and empathy. And like I said, they really can get a lot, like even better than we can of, yeah. And then I asked her, you know, is there an amount of time that would be not too soon? Like how much time would be enough? You know, would two weeks be better? Would a month, like a year, 10 years? I mean, will we ever be ready to lose daddy? No, like there's no amount of enough. So what's the difference if it's two days or five or seven or 25 years? Like, and she said, yeah, it's never going to be enough. So I guess it will be better for daddy if he can die sooner. Wow. Oh, there's a wonderful um, moth story where a chaplain shares a story and she ends by saying, you know, we can trust a child with death. You know, we can trust a child to know how they want to navigate a death. And I think it really goes back to what you said earlier, Cynthia, about are we not inclusive of children because of how we feel about the situation or are we not inclusive because we're not listening to what the child is actually saying. And they say, you know, infants understand the concept of love so that they understand the concept of grief and what it feels like to experience a loss. Then we're old enough to say, here's what I want to know. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to be a part of. So that I'm not having coffee with a friend in her 60s who says, I have carried the weight of not being included in my father's funeral and he died when I was 10. And I've carried that for 50 years. Hmm. One um, therapist said to me, which stuck with me, sometimes the truth is far less scary than what all the unknowns that they are imagining in their head. And that our fears or worries or the things we want to protect them from. My father said, Maybe we just won't tell them it's made because I would never want them to think that their dad chose to leave them. Like, what if they grow up thinking like he chose to die? And I said to him, well, but dad, like, we will just explain to them, like, he didn't choose to die when he could have lived. Like, he chose to die on a Tuesday so that cancer didn't make him die on Wednesday. Like, death wasn't his choice. When was his choice? So let's change my question a little bit. Let's double up on the hope and forget the fear place. And listening to you speak, Cynthia, my hope is that MAID will help parents to talk about dying and death differently in a more social way with their children and that the next generation maybe as a result of us normalizing and socializing some control and timing that choice not if you're going to die but when you're going to die and maybe even where and maybe even how in terms Mm -hmm. of yours when you talked about the beautiful things that were in the room that children will understand that we can have a relationship with dying and death that is healthy. Yeah, I hope that we can, as a community, 
talk more openly about death and be less fearful about death and even be more intentional about death. I mean, from the day we're born, we are like one day closer to death, right? Yep. And living intentionally and dying intentionally and speaking openly, you know, it's another stage of life. Birth is beautiful and horrible and awful, and you can talk about it and plan for it and then experience it. And it may not be how you talked about it or how you planned for it, but it's the process, the birth of both my children, there were plans and then there was reality and the death of my husband with all of our information and a planned medically assisted death it still doesn't always go exactly how you planned it but the process of planning it and forces you to talk about it and to think about it and to be intentional about it and then you kind of have to let some of that go and just see how it actually unfolds because you know, this illusion of control doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> yeah. it's going to be the way you planned yeah. it out to be. It is an illusion regardless. Right. Yeah. Before we wrap up, Cynthia, I would love it if you would share with us about your husband's funeral. Sure. Yeah. Um, in the spirit of having my kids participate and feel supported, I planned my husband's funeral in a way that would allow them to be supported by their peers and their community. So we chose a funeral home that was close to the cemetery so we could walk instead of, you know, getting cars and drive because we would have children who had been sitting and need a body breaks. And we had it on a school day afternoon after school was out so that we could have their friends and their teachers come to their funeral. I wanted my kids to not feel alone. Yeah, it was a community event. We invited and were really clear through the school, asked the school to send messages home, asking parents to come with their children, even if they'd never met us. We asked people to wear colorful clothing and sports attire, jerseys, and the night before we had like a pajama party at the funeral home so that people could, um... basically, I sent a message saying, I mean, this is a pretty healthy looking dead guy. Like, if your kid's going to see a dead person for the first time, this isn't the worst one to see. He looks pretty much like he looks every day on the playground, so... If you need your kid to kind of get to know death and dying, like this is not the worst time. We, we played a movie, wear your pajamas, bring a teddy bear. The adults will be having some wine. And yeah, we just tried to make like death positive and take away some of the fear. We also ended up like painting his coffin on the schoolyard with our community of people. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. It's just been incredible to speak with you. And the fact that you're not only trusting us with your story, but it's that altruistic part of your writing project that you're giving back, right? And so you're giving back to us by, you know, hanging out and, and letting your story be disseminated through this podcast, but also thinking about the ways that your story translates into all these other corners of the world. So I really thank you for your time, but also for your quest, right? Your mission. It's just been a real pleasure. Thank you very much.
And Cynthia, I've been so looking forward to speaking with you since last November when we met you at the World Federation for Assisted Dying Conference. I wanted to hear some of your stories, learn more about your children, who are so very lucky to have you as a mother. I've really appreciated all your time and your energy today. Thank you so much. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate the opportunity. No doubt you can tell that Carolyn and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with Cynthia. It was great to have a chance to talk about children in the context of medical assistance in dying, but more importantly, to talk about the role and the knowledge and the experience of children as they navigate end of life, dying, death, loss, and bereavement. So if you think of someone that you think we should have a conversation with on our Disrupting Death podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so very much for listening. When did we Every